Acts chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 5 to the end of the chapter, but I want to just read the first 13 verses. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them, and they put them in the custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you all and all and to all the people of, of Israel by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, uh, which became the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, if you remember from last week, you have this crowd who's gathered at the temple. And they're gathered there because they've seen a man who they know was born lame. And that man doesn't just kind of casually walk into the temple. He jumps and leaps, praising God that he's been made able to walk for the first time. He enters the temple for the first time. He rejoices in God, and it draws such a crowd that people come around and they say, what has just happened? And Peter answers their astonishment by saying, this is what Jesus does. This is Jesus who did it. It wasn't our piety, he says. It wasn't our power. This was Jesus who did this. He's the one who healed this man. And of course, as we just read in the first four verses there of chapter, uh, of chapter 4, uh, the, the religious leaders, they see this, they, they see the commotion, they go in, they hear Peter preaching the resurrection of the dead in Jesus. Both preaching that Jesus has risen from the dead, and that because he's risen from the dead, he will raise people from the dead. John chapter 5 talks about that really clearly, that Jesus is the one who resurrects from the dead. And they hear this, these Sadducees, these these religious leaders who actually don't believe in the supernatural, they don't believe, they believe there's a God who gave us law, some moral codes to live by, but they don't believe in the miracles, they don't believe in the supernatural, they don't believe in the resurrection, they don't believe in the afterlife, so they're really annoyed. And so they arrest these guys. They have the authority to arrest Peter and John, and they arrest these guys. And you can imagine, as they spend a night in jail, as they spend a night arrested, and, and by the way, when we read in verse 13, it says that they recognize they were with Jesus. There's a spiritualist in there, of course, but the, the, there's a practical thing that you have to recognize. These are the same men who arrested and had Jesus beaten and crucified. These are the same men. They're the ones that made sure that, that Jesus was the one who was beaten and crucified. And so you can imagine Peter and John in jail that night and thinking to themselves, what's going to happen? 
They knew Jesus had promised them, if you follow me, what's happened to you is going to, I mean, what's happened to me is going to happen to you. You're going to experience some of the same suffering. They, they knew that, but you've got you to gotta wonder, this is the first time we see this persecution happen in the book of Acts, if they're thinking, okay, here it goes. And, and I wonder, I wonder, I don't know, but I wonder if Peter thinks about his wife. What's going to happen to my wife? Who's going to take care of her? Or, or, or John, can you imagine John thinking about, what about the Lord? I mean, the mother of our Lord Jesus. Because remember, Jesus at the cross, do you guys remember that? Says to, to John, behold your mother, and to his mother, behold your son. Basically, as he's being crucified, he says, John, I want you to have the responsibility of taking care of my mom. Imagine John being there and that thinking, what's going to happen to the mother of our Lord? And all these, these things would have been there, and I'm sure they were at least tempted to be afraid, to wonder, how are we going to have what we need to do this? I think sometimes we can read the scriptures and wrongly picture the first believers as these stoic, uh, sort of strong believers who never faltered, who never wavered, who never struggled, and this is just not the case. Paul says it plainly. I wish I would have uh, put this, screen, this verse on the screen for you. But Paul says it plainly in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, we don't want you to be ignorant of our troubles in Asia, Paul says. For we were basically fearing unto death. The trials were so heavy. He says, but we put our trust, but God allowed us so that our trust would not be in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And we read in the book of, of Proverbs this. Listen, in the book of Proverbs it says, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. What the disciples had by the power of the Spirit because of what Christ had done for them through his life, death, and resurrection, was a healthy fear of God. Not a shaking in their boots that God's going to judge them. They had no fear of judgment. They knew that the judgment had been taken care of by Christ. You can read about that in John's epistle, 1 John. Perfect love casts out fear. No fear of judgment. But they feared God. They said, God, yes, we, we worry about what might happen to us, but we are more concerned about your opinion than anything else. In you we fear, in you we trust, it's you that we love, and you are our strong confidence. This is what we're going to see worked out time and time again in the book of Acts. And what's interesting, in the strong confidence, I think in, this, in, in, in the rest of chapter 4, there's, there's really four gospel truths, truths about the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. Four gospel truths that we can have a strong confidence in. So follow me as we go through these. The first one in, in verses 5 to 12 is that there's salvation and no other name. Look what it says in verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes came together in Jerusalem. Uh, they had the whole high priestly family. This, by the way, is, is, is Luke giving us details that can be tested and found accurate historically. You want to know how accurate the Bible is? Check out Luke's writing specifically. But he names this high priestly family. He says, they, they brought him over. And it says in verse 7, they asked him these questions. In verse 7, they're asking Peter and John, by what power or what name did you do this? In a real sense, they're saying, what sort of power and what kind of name does what you just did? 
Now, what's interesting about this is that they would have seen this same power and this same name declared earlier when Jesus himself was doing it. When Jesus himself was healing and doing mighty miracles and claiming to be God's only begotten son. But the problem is, okay, their spiritual blindness still remained. Even after they had Jesus crucified, even if they had heard about his resurrection, though they didn't probably believe it, their blindness still remained. The religious authorities didn't recognize the kinds of things that Jesus does. So what does Peter do in verse 8? It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and we'll talk about what he said in a second, but I won't want you to miss what it says. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now wait a second, didn't that already happen back at Pentecost? Why is it saying again that Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit? What we see in the book of Pentecost, or sorry, the book of Acts, is this reality in, in at Pentecost, this baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is, the, this is them, I believe, and, and again, I'll be honest, different Christians have different opinions on this, but I believe that was them being born again. So they knew the Lord in, you know, in, a, in an earthly sense. They, they recognized him. They had saving faith, but they needed to be born again. Jesus said, we all must be born again. So at Pentecost, they're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Another way I believe the scripture says that is to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. There's one baptism, but we need, listen, many fillings. It's not as if when God gives us this new life by his Holy Spirit and we enter into God's family that, sorted, done, nothing else is needed. No, we need God's not just ongoing presence that he promises, but we need the overflow of power that comes from God's presence, which is why we're commanded to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so here's Peter. He's in a place where, you know, he hasn't rehearsed. He didn't know what's going to happen, but he's filled with the Holy Spirit to say, what he needs to say. And listen, this is, exactly, this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. This is not Peter mustering up courage, but the Holy Spirit coming upon Peter in the right time, in the right place, just as Jesus said would happen. Luke chapter 12 says this, listen. And when you, this is Jesus speaking, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, don't be anxious about what you should, should or how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This is not Peter rehearsing and getting everything just right. This is Peter in a desperate situation and saying, all right, God, you promised. <laughs> Jesus, you promised. And he's taking Jesus at his word. And guess what? Jesus always comes through and does what he says. And the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And here's what he says in verse 8. He says to them, rulers of the people and elders, he addresses them respectfully. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to, to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So, so here's Peter in a place where he probably could have just said, hey, we're just trying to help people out. We, we don't want to cause any problems. We, we don't want to bring division we just want to help people out. But he says, no, I want you to be really clear. This happens by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then Peter does what he's been doing ever since we started the book of Acts. He says to them, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. Peter makes it really clear, okay? He doesn't mess around. He doesn't, he doesn't flinch 
that God is in control. We're going to talk in just a minute about the sovereignty of God in verses, uh, when we get to verses 23 to 31. That God's the one who's in control of this, but that doesn't let them off the hook for crucifying Jesus. They're still responsible for their sins, even though God is sovereign. And it's interesting, what he says here in verse 11, he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. He's saying, you're the guys you're supposed to be building up God's people, but you rejected the cheap stone which has now become, Peter says, the cornerstone. Now here's what Peter's doing. Listen, Peter's doing just what Jesus did. He's connecting their rejection, the religious leader's rejection of Jesus being God's chosen king, Jesus being the Messiah. He's connecting that rejection with a promise made or a prophecy made by Psalm, in Psalm 118, verse 22. Jesus did the exact same thing. In Matthew 21, 42, Jesus quotes Psalm 118 when he says, Jesus said to them, Have you not read in the scripture the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. I love this. Because Peter's basically, okay, Jesus, I'm trusting you to do what you've promised to do. I'm in that place now. I'm not really sure what to say. I need your Holy Spirit. Boom, Jesus sends his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon Peter afresh. Of course, the Spirit was dwelling in Peter, but he overflows Peter and gives him the word he needs to say, teaches him what he needs to say. And then Peter's in that place, and what does he remember? What does the Spirit bring to his mind? Exactly what Jesus said. He quotes the same scripture that Jesus quoted about Jesus. Matthew chapter 118, in a similar situation. But then we get to verse 12. And in verse 12, Peter makes the most exclusive statement that you can make. Look what he says in verse 12. He says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. When you say there's no other name to a religious Jewish person, There's no other name to be saved. The name they're thinking is Yahweh, not Jesus. And yet he says to them, there's no other name but Jesus among which we must be saved. And and, and I think some of us are really familiar with this verse, and we we maybe lose its potency because it's lost some of its potency. But I want you to recognize what he says, how exclusive the statement is. In no one else, he says. No other name, he says. Under heaven, what does that mean? There's nowhere on the earth where the name of Jesus, where Jesus, who he is and what he's done, isn't how people are saved. He says, given among men. In other words, he's saying, there's no culture where the name of Jesus, where the person of Jesus Christ, isn't the one and only who can save. I want you to think about this for a second. Because, listen, people will say, people will say that Christianity is a white man's religion. Now, look around the room, I don't think that's the case. But also, Jesus himself was not white. He was Middle Eastern. He was probably darker skinned. The gospel first goes to Africa before it goes anywhere in Europe. This idea that it's a white man's religion is nuts. And it's nuts not just because of history. It's nuts because of what the scripture says right here. That when Peter makes this exclusive statement, and he's probably only thinking about the Jews, but what he says under the power of the Holy Spirit is actually setting up the rest of the book of Acts that this gospel is going to go out through the entire land. Because guess what? It's only Jesus who saves in every culture, among, in every place, in all the earth.
Now, now, when he says saved, we need to think about this as well. It's, it's, a, it's a word, again, that if you've been a, around church, uh, it's kind of a churchy word. At least the way we use it in church, it feels quite churchy. It literally just means to be delivered. And, and to be honest, in different contexts, it means slightly different things. The same Greek word can mean different things. It can mean delivered as in like you, someone was trying to you know, uh, take you as a slave and then someone delivered you, they saved you. It could mean uh, the idea that you were about to drown and you were saved, you pulled out of that water. It can mean something as basic as that. But here, it seems pretty obvious in this context that Peter means saved from the wrath to come. See, remember he's talking to primarily Jewish religious leaders in the hearing of Jewish people. And the Jewish religious leaders would have taught, many of them would have taught, that the the purpose of Gentiles, the purpose of non-Jews was to stoke the fire of hell. The Sadducees may not have believed that, but the Pharisees definitely did. And many of the, of the religious Jews believe this. So they would have recognized that, that, that hell was this place that God created for Gentiles, for those not of Israel, for those who didn't believe. They would have thought that. That's the wrath to come that we see written about in Scripture. And so when Peter says this exclusive statement about it's only by Jesus that we're saved, he means saved from the very wrath of God. Now, this is something that we're not always comfortable with as modern Christians. Uh, And if you're not a Christian here and you're still kind of checking out this Jesus stuff, this might be something that's really hard to swallow. But follow me, please. Listen. Stay with me. Because what the Scripture teaches is, is that our biggest problem is not political. Our biggest problem is not ethnic or economic. Our biggest problem is spiritual. That we have sinned against our God. We have not given him thanks for every good thing because every good thing comes from him. And we've refused to worship him and instead we've worshiped gods of our own imagination. We might even sometimes call those gods of imagination Jesus. But still, we tend to worship gods of our own imagination. And that rightly makes God angry. Not because God's some jealous megalomaniac who needs all the attention, but God created us for himself, and he can't give us anything better than himself, and so when we worship something other than him, you know what happens? We destroy ourselves, and we destroy all those around us, and that makes God angry. But Jesus saves us from that. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm reading from the New Living Translation where it says, and all of us used to live that way, that is living for ourselves, that is worshiping our own gods, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. We all have one of those. But our very, uh, by our very nature, we are subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God. <laughs> Aren't those great words? But God is so rich in mercy and he loves us, loved us so much that even though we were dead, spiritually dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. There's salvation in no other name. Guys, listen, this isn't just a a thing that feels a bit constricting, this should be a thing that should be most liberating to us. Not, oh, we figured it out. We're so clever. We figured out Jesus is the way. No, you figured out nothing. (laughs) God got your attention, either through other people or 
a billboard or a gospel track. God got your attention because he so loved you that he wanted you to know him. See, God gets angry at sin. You know what he does? He takes on human flesh and dies on a cross. He sacrifices himself to pay for sin. We get angry at sin, and what do we do? We get self-righteous and point the finger. God sacrifices for us. Listen, every other bit of strong confidence that you're going to have has to start here. There's salvation in no other name. If you don't understand anything else about Christianity, know this, it's about Jesus, because Jesus alone saves. Not you, not us, him. We also, though, can have a strong confidence in this, that God has a power no one can deny. Look at verse 13. This is what happens. In verse 13, it says, um, it says, now when they had saw the boldness of Peter and John, that's the religious leaders, and perceived that they were uneducated and common men. They have that Norfolk accent, right, as we talked about before. They were astonished, and they recognized they had been with Jesus. So as I said, they knew, well, these are the same guys that were with Jesus. We remember when we arrested Jesus, these guys were there. But also they recognize, okay, where's this boldness come from? It's definitely not from their education. Where's it come from? It comes from walking with Jesus. But seeing the man, verse 14, who, who was healed, standing besides them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave, that is Peter and John to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that they, may spread, that they may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in the name. Think about this. The religious leaders, listen, validate the miracle. A miracle really happened. And they still won't submit to Jesus. They see the strong confidence of Peter and John. And they know that strong confidence was dependent upon Jesus. And they still won't submit to Jesus. Instead of, they might recognize it, but they devalue it. Nah, it's not important. It's a threat to us, actually. See, here's the, here's the reality. They didn't mind the miracle. Miracles are a good thing. That's fine. You want to do a miracle? Whatever. Even the Sadducees don't mind a miracle if it benefits the people that they're trying to tax and support their temple. But they don't want Jesus to be known. You need to know something. That's how the devil still works today. He didn't mind a miracle. As much as we desire to see God do supernatural things, and we do, we pray that God still, we believe scripturally God still does miracles. We pray God does supernatural healings, God does miracle things. We do believe God still does that. But here's the reality. The scripture teaches that, that Satan can counterfeit miracles. He's happy with miracles. What he's not happy with is the preaching of Jesus. And he'll let us have any religious substitute, including ones that have miracles, as long as we don't preach Jesus. So what do the apostles do? So the apostles pack their bags and say, sorry, we won't talk about Jesus anymore. Please don't give us one of those asbos. Now what they do is, verse 18, it says this. So they called them and they charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus, but Peter and John answered them. Now listen what they said. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. I love this. I love this because this is not some sort of high-handed rebellion. It really isn't. They're just going, they're just, there's, again, the strong confidence that just says, you know what? 
I, I can imagine they're kind of looking at these guys with a bit of pity. Like, you know that a miracle's been done in Jesus' name right in front of you, and you still won't even consider him. So I'll tell you what, you guys judge if we, you know, if we should obey you or obey God. You guys tell us how that works. But we have to speak what we know. Can I ask you a question? What about you? And I mean this very, very seriously. Okay, this is not about, this is not meant to be guilt-inducing. It's meant to be for us to be, do some examination and think about what we know. Because I'm hoping, in fact, I'm believing that most of you have something that you can say, I've seen and heard this about Jesus. As difficult as your life has been, as up and down as your story might be, you've seen and heard something of Jesus that you want to say. What is it? How is Jesus changing you by his power? How, how are your desires and your behaviors changing? It's all a process as you walk with him. Because this is the story that Jesus is writing. He's writing a story in your life. He's overwriting your life story with his life story. And bringing the kind of change that people can go, I can't deny this guy's different. I can't deny this woman and her behavior is different. I can't deny the change that I've seen in them. I look back in my 36 years of being a Christian, and there's some things that I go, gosh, Lord, I thought that would be different by now. But I am really, really thankful that the people who knew me best before I was a Christian go, wow, you've changed. You've really changed. We, we knew you before. You are different because I can say it's only the grace of God, it's only the power of Jesus that's changing me and I got a long ways to go you see this is what Peter and John wanted to, 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 to bring out they couldn't stop speaking about Jesus because they could deny the power no more than the religious leaders who didn't want to believe in Jesus could deny it they, they knew they didn't, heal, they didn't heal this lame man they knew that that it wasn't their, as, as Peter says, our piety or power. They knew it was Jesus who did this. And so they're like, how can we not speak of what we've seen and heard? We saw this man live such a perfect life that even his enemies couldn't accuse him. We were there when he was being beaten and crucified. And his mother could have said, no, I lied, I lied. I was, got pregnant out of wedlock. I just made up the whole story because I didn't want to be embarrassed. Please don't kill my son. And any of your mothers would have done that. But she has to just watch her son tortured because she knows how that, that boy was conceived. She knows how that, who that man Jesus was. They thought he was nuts, but they also thought there's something different about this man. The men, the men who walked with him close, most closely knew there was nothing that he could be accused of. He lived a perfect life. How could they deny what they've seen and heard? They couldn't. Folks, listen. I know your story is still being written, and I know there's big gaps and there's chapters that you're ashamed of, but you need to know something, okay? If you have put your faith in Jesus alone to save you, you believe that God sent Jesus to die for your sins, and he's risen from the dead, you know he's alive today. If you, your faith is in Jesus, he's still writing your story. Share it. Share what he's written so far. Because it's a power no one can deny.
So what do these guys do? Verse 21, it says, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Why? Because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. And for the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. In other words, he was legally an adult. His testimony had to be received as true. So they had to receive that testimony as true. And they couldn't deny in front of all these people. Interesting, isn't it? This is what happens when you become really religious. I mean, if you're really religious, you know what ends up happening? You care more about what people think than what God thinks. Because if they really believed these guys were false, they would have kept them in jail. But they were just afraid of what the people might think. Whereas you have Peter and John who don't really care what the people think as much as they care about what God thinks. So they let them go. And so when they let them go, what did the believers do? Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. What do they do? They pray to the sovereign Lord, the God who controls everything. What we're going to see in verses 23 to 31 is a sovereignty that no one can resist. And when I say those words, when we write those words down, I, I, I wrestled with this, like, oh, well, gosh, people resist God's sovereignty all the time, so what do I mean by that? Here's, here's what I mean. I don't mean that people don't have choices to make. I don't mean that people don't try to ignore who God is and that he's in control. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about at the end of the day, we can all rebel against God, and God's still in control. That's what I mean. And it's this kind of sovereignty that should motivate our prayers God's in control of everything. See, here's the deal. They are, and it says they, Peter and John, they've just gone through some things. They're really pumped up, but they're probably also still going, whoo, got out of that one, but okay, Lord, what's going to happen? So what do they do? They get all their friends, all the believers together and say, we got to seek God. Let's seek the sovereign God. You know why? Because they believe there's nothing too difficult for the God who made all things with his spoken word. This is the danger of, uh, of being philosophically evolutionary in our thinking. The more we say, yeah, okay, there's maybe a creator, we can't explain the origin, but actually we know things all evolved. And our, 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 sh- our biggest surety foundationally is things just evolved. When that happens, we don't trust this God. I'm not, this is not about the age of the earth, any of that kind of stuff. That's not what I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about just a philosophy, a worldview. I'm talking about if we don't recognize there's a God who created all things through his word, which is what Hebrews tells us we believe by faith. If we don't believe that, what God are we trusting? What we're accused of is by secularists, um, and there's becoming less of those, praise God, (laughs) But what we're accused by them often is, oh, you just believe in the God of the gaps. You can't explain it, so God must have done it. But that's not who we believe in Scripture. We believe in a testimony of Scripture of a God who made all things. And that God's sovereign over all things, and we trust him to do what he wants to do. They prayed to him because they knew nothing was too difficult for that God. But also, listen, they prayed as friends because they recognized that God had brought them together. Don't think of just the 12 or even just the 120. 
people who had walked with Jesus, who had seen him in his earthly ministry, who, who were waiting for that promise of the Spirit. Don't just think about that. Think about these other men and women who had been added to him, thousands. I reckon that they probably went to whatever their closest house church was and said, hey, spread the word. Here's the situation. We've been released, but we need to pray. And the way Luke writes this is if, listen, all these thousands and thousands of new believers are praying as if they're one man. Wow. They pray this way because they realize it wasn't their ethnicity or their Jewishness. All these people that were first Christians here all had a Jewish background. They had different ethnicities, grew up in different cultures. That's not what brought them together. They're friends because Jesus was a friend to them. And so they came together and sought the Lord and said, God, please do something. God's sovereignty should motivate our prayers. But also, listen, when we talk about God's sovereignty, it must be defined by the Scripture. Look at how they pray, verse 25. They're praying, who, God, we're praying to you who made the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then they quote Psalms chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Why do the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against their anointed. And then Peter, as they're praying, or whoever's praying, as they're praying, they're recognizing Psalm 1, or Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, being fulfilled in Jesus. Look at verse 27. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, notice, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Do you see what he's saying there? When he quotes Psalm 2, why do the Gentiles rage, the people plot anything, the kings of the earth, the rulers that were gathered together? In other words, he says, everybody was against Jesus, just as Psalms 2 said they would be. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. (laughs) Okay, wait a second. How does this work? It works in a way that is a mystery to us and we should hold the mystery. Because here's the reality of God's sovereignty, right? we, We should not try to define the sovereignty of God by attempts to explain God away. Oh, God's sovereign, but because we have free will, he just won't, he won't mess with anything unless we make a choice. So God kind of, what God puts his sovereignty on pause while we make a bunch of bad choices? Let's hope that's not the case. <laughs> but also, listen, we, we don't want to, to say this as kind of, um, okay, man isn't accountable. Because they're praying and Peter's preaching, these guys are accountable for doing what God actually planned they would do. They're choosing to do this evil, and God's saying, I'm going to use that evil to save the very ones who are doing it. This is how God defines sovereignty. It's not an attempt for us to explain away uh, who God is. Oh, we have free will, that's why there's so much evil. Yeah, there is evil because we have free will, no doubt about it. But he's also not excusing man's accountability. Nor saying, listen, that man's sin will keep God from working all things together for good. Listen, if we're going to have a strong confidence, we got to recognize Our God wins. Our God is in control. Our God is working even when we're failing. Our God is working when no one seems to want to hear about him. 
Our God is sovereign. That is the testimony of Scripture. I want to give you guys an assignment. I want you to read sometime today, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 39. Not even the whole chapter. The whole chapter is amazing. Just read Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 39. Read it out loud to yourself or with your family and see if you can come up with any conclusion that God is totally in control. Because if we can believe that God is in control, if we can believe this, the testimony of Scripture, that God is in control, guess what? We don't have to resist it. We can go, Lord, we're going to seek you to do what only you can do because there's no enemy that we have. There's no weakness that we have. There's no circumstance that we have that you cannot overcome. That's where our strong confidence comes in. In fact, they do this. They pray this way. And we see what happens in verse 29. In verse 29 it says, And now, Lord, they pray, look upon their threats and grant grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Now, here's what we tend to do. Let's be honest. We tend to say, God, okay, you're in control. Stop the suffering. Stop the pain. Stop the trial. Let it all end. You know what these guys prayed? Lord, give us the grace to be bold and confident in you when we're going through this. Does that mean it's wrong for us to pray that, that bad things would stop? No, that's totally appropriate. There's other scriptures, other prayers where we can say, Lord, stop, stop this injustice, and we pray, God, that you would deliver us from this. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. But I want you to notice, because they're being persecuted for sharing Jesus, they're saying, Lord, no matter what happens, just give us the ability to keep sharing Jesus. That's a strong confidence. And here's what they pray, verse 30. Do this, Lord, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So they're saying, Lord, give us boldness, and just as we preach Jesus, would you continue to confirm by doing the same miracles that got us arrested? And what happens in verse 31? It says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Do you you see what's going on here? It's not just that God's sovereignty should motivate our prayers or to be defined by scriptures, but God's sovereignty will be demonstrated in reality. God will show up when we pray to him. Do you believe that? No, seriously. Do you believe God's going to show up when we pray to him? Then why aren't you here when we're praying? How come our prayer meetings are so blinking small? How come prayer is like, oh yeah, forget, house group is over, we better take a little bit of time to pray. Why do we do that instead of saying, let's seek God first. God, what do you want to do? Would you teach us as we open your word? Would you show us how we can bear each other's burdens? Would you do what you want to do at our service? We take a lot, we put a lot of effort to make sure the services here meet needs. But you know what we often always pray? We're always praying, God, here's the plan, but tweak it if you want to. You do what you want to do because you're in control and what you do is best. Guys, listen, again, this is not about a guilt trip. This is about a challenge for us to say, do we believe what we say we believe? Do we go, that makes sense to me, or I know in my head that's true, or is this our strong confidence? Is he our strong confidence? Listen, in the book of Hebrews, the writer says this, so... 
What makes us think that we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and then was delivered to us by those who heard him? That's kind of describing what we're reading right now in Acts chapter 4. And God confirmed the message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever he chose. He chose, sorry. See, see, God works supernaturally to confirm the truth about Jesus and to give his people a strong confidence to share it. And it's not the confirming miracle that's the big issue. The issue is the word that's confirmed. That's what we can't ignore. I mean, we still pray. I still pray, God, confirm your word with signs and wonders. I mean, one of the few times that I've seen God like instantly heal somebody through my prayers. He's only been a Christian for 36 years, been a mystery for 32 years. I'll be honest, it's only happened like a handful of times. I've prayed for lots of people to be healed, but I've only seen God supernaturally heal, like, you know, instantaneously, a couple, two, three, four times maybe. But one of the times was a woman who asked me to pray, who I knew was a very sort of spiritual woman, came from a very charismatic background, believed in supernatural stuff, and she says, she's standing up the whole service, I got a back problem, she says, can you pray for my back? I got a really bad back problem, and, and uh, who has the gift of healing here? And I'm all, uh, anybody who will pray in faith for you, let's just pray. So I grabbed another brother who I hoped had more faith than me, and I said, let's pray. And I just prayed, Lord, would you just confirm your word, the signs and wonders following, and heal this woman, instantly healed. Now, I share that story because I didn't have much faith that God would do that. She seemed to, I didn't. The other brother wasn't sure what was going on, bless him. But, but here's the reality. It wasn't, I really believe it wasn't about just that woman being healed, but that woman being reminded that God's word can be trusted, that the gospel is true, that God is sovereign, he's in control. This is why, though there's times when I wish I saw God do more supernatural stuff, I believe it happens just as he wills, or it says in Hebrews, whenever he chooses. It's up to him. But here's what I do want to look out for. I want to look out, even if I'm looking in hindsight back to see where are God's fingerprints? Where's God answering prayers? How is God providing? How is God working? How is God changing? And then give God the glory for that. We're going to hear a couple great testimonies in December, one on the 3rd and one on the, uh, a whole big one <laughs> on the 10th. To not hear about perfect people, but to hear about how faithful God is to interact and to intervene in difficult situations. And I say this because knowing that some of you guys are going through tough things and you're going, why isn't God interacting in my situation? And I just want to tell you, by the authority of God's word, he, he is. He is. If in no other way, then he's brought you here today to be reminded of who he is. Get some prayer today too. Let's, let's keep asking God to do what only he can do. The point is, it's a sovereignty no one can resist. God's in control and he will have his way. Lastly, quickly, it's a growth. We can have a strong confidence in a growth that every one of us needs. Now, you see on your notes, if you guys have your notes, it says to make gospel sandwiches. I know that's really cheesy. I do. That's really cheesy, but you will remember it. Cheesy sandwich, all that. It's all going to come back to you, right? Here's what I mean. Look at verse 32. I want you to notice the pattern here in verses 32 to 35. Follow me. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of his things belonged to him was his own. But they had every, everything in common. 
And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought them the proceeds of what was sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each one as they had need. Now, do you kind of see the pattern? Verse 32, there's what we might call gospel demonstration. That is, God's love is demonstrated by our love for each other. And then Luke then Make sure that we plug in here in verse 33, a gospel proclamation. That is, God's love being spoken about, coming through the great power of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's being, it's being explained that so that our hearts, so that people's hearts are established by his great grace. And then he goes back to gospel demonstration. That is, God's love uh, uh, being demonstrated by the power of the Spirit to fulfill, what the, to fulfill the spirit of God's law, which we'll talk about in a second. But this is what I mean by gospel sandwich. There's a demonstration of who God is. Listen, when we talk about gospel, it means good news. Because it's good, it should be, demonstrate, it should be demonstrated. People should see it. But it's news, so it should be explained. So gospel sandwich, I'm going to show it, I'm going to say it, I'm going to show it some more. This is the growth we need to grow into. Now here's the thing. Some of us are naturally better at gospel proclamation than gospel demonstration. Other of us are more naturally prone to gospel demonstration than gospel proclamation. This is why we all need to be involved in this. we got to make the sandwich together, you know what I'm saying? We're going to have a whole month in December of outreach. Every service has an outreach element to it. And the gospel sandwich is not going to be just the proclamation that happens from up front and testimonies in the word. It's going to be how we love one another. That's the bread that holds the meat. And if any of you guys know about sandwiches, and I know about sandwiches, good bread makes a good sandwich. Now, what do I mean by God's love is demonstrated by the power of his spirit to do or, or, or to fulfill the spirit of his law? What's happening here in, in Acts chapter 4 is actually a fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter 15. Listen to this. Where God says to his people as they're about to enter into the promised land, he says, but there will be no poor among you for the, law, the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. This is, I want you to see the irony that Luke's pointing out here. The religious leaders who have arrested and now threatened the Jesus followers, they preached this law, but they couldn't do it. Then the Jesus followers actually did this law while preaching Jesus. That's the irony here. That's the, that's the thing that, that Luke's wanting us to see. Because it's, it's, it's not that the law is bad. It's that the law cannot be fulfilled, that is the spirit of the law or the letter of the law, cannot be fulfilled apart from the spirit of God. And it's only those who believe in the Son of God who actually have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. See, if we're going to make these sandwiches, we need to recognize it's, it's going to be something that only God can do through us. But then when we see God do it, we're going to give Him glory. And lastly, in the last two verses, I'm going to say this really quick. Let me just read these really quick. Luke wants to introduce us to Barnabas for this reason. Look at verse 36. Thus Joseph, 
who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money where uh, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now I'm reckoning that Adam next week will pull some stuff out of there about Barnabas. But here's what I just want you to notice. First of all, his name is actually Joseph, not Barnabas. His nickname is Barnabas, as we see here, it's son of encouragement. Literally, it's translated son of prophecy. And this guy's ministry would become so encouraging, so kindly, so effective that it gave him that nickname, Barnabas. I, that, does that not blow you away? What ministry takes up most of your time? Like, I mean, all of us serve in different ways, but think about, I mean, can you imagine if, if there was a way that we could make children's ministry director a nickname, Joe, and give it to you? Like Joe's name is Lover of Children. How, how, how do you say that? I don't even know how you say that. And, and, you know, you just, you would, probably not a good way, but you probably say that word, and that's Joe's, Joe's character so fits her ministry, that becomes her name. This is Barnabas. But Luke also wants us to see, listen, that this kind of growth that every believer needs only comes through individual participation. If you're like, ah, oh, this sounds so good, John, I want to see this happening, then you know how it's going to happen? Do it. Do it. Don't just come to church as a spectator. Come and be the church as a participant because that's the way we're going to grow. I've gone too long. Our fears often come when we see our own lack of growth or when we feel like life's completely out of God's control or when we feel powerless to change anything. But a strong confidence come when we fear the Lord and we recognize, Jesus, you alone save. And you who saves has a power no one can deny and has a sovereignty no one can resist and can bring a growth that all of us need. Is that your strong confidence today?